Welcome to Into Theology. We are meeting again to discuss Augustine's confessions. We're in chapter six about pleasure, the pursuit of personal glory, and why God's the best. But before then, Ian needs to rebuke me for not knowing some cultural artifact from when he was a child. Go on. Well, I mean, so I we were joking before we started to record that the lighting, that's why I've had to screw the lighting here because it was making me look like an angel. I was like, I am just like this Chan 69 song, Angels with Three Faces. And you don't know who Sham 69 was. Never heard. One of the greatest punk bands coming out of the UK, late 70s, early 80s. And uh, I'm appalled that you claim to be a punk rocker. And, uh, I, you know. I only, I only listen to Christian music. I listen yeah, to- okay. You're the guy that would, like, send me quotes of, like, the misfits from, <laughs> on Halloween and well, stuff like that. So. Yeah, uh, it's all it's, uh, uh, cultural engagement of pagans. Uh, being relevant with the cool I was being kids. relevant to connect with the kids. So, fires uh, burning bright and so on. That's right. Um, okay. Well, first of all. <laughs> Uh, pumpkin faces in the night are not things this quote a little the segue a little awkward <laughs> sensible objects or something 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 hey, augustine <laughs> yeah <laughs> section six of uh chapter six well uh, i can do that um yeah i mean this you know uh book six i actually in terms of all the of all the books that we've dealt with so far in, in confessions this is the one that seems kind of like most like just down to earth really right. in a weird way it doesn't have like all the in-depth kind of like philosophical there's stuff on like evil and god having a body in here and things like that but like um it's not as like kind of intense like whoa what is going on it's almost like biographical you know mm-hmm. the way he's kind of like engaging with these various people in his life well, you, um, so before i thought you, before I, you I, jump in can you yeah. set up where are we in his life like just because people so he's kind of like at the end now so the like uh, opening of the book starts really kind of within an adolescence and now he's roughly about 30 and uh, so he's like describing in the earlier books, like all of his, you know, struggles with things like lust and friendship and whatnot, and like kind of the really like the sensible world. And now as a, as a kind of more mature, he's been teaching, you know, by the time you get to the end of it, it's been a lot. Um, and so he's been, he spent a bit of time teaching whether in Carthage or Rome. And, uh, and so he's like more matured as the man. He's kind of like on the precipice of like Christianity at this point. Um, you know, he's kind of a, in book six, he's abandoned the Manichees. Um, he's telling his mom about that. And she's kind of like ambivalent, <laughs> which is weird. Because uh, you think, oh, she'd be jumping for joy. But she's like, oh, yeah, I knew that was going to happen. So, um, so he's, he, he learns to teach. He teaches in Carthage. He finds out the students are not very good there. Yeah. So he wants to go to Rome. His mom's a little bit clingy. So he says, uh, I got to go do something and ditches yeah. his mom, heads yeah. to Rome and teaches there. But he finds out, well, it's not good to teach in Rome either because students uh, don't pay you or something to that effect. Yeah, yeah. So he then uh, finds a connection in the city of Rome, a Manichaean connection, which is yeah. kind of a, a, basically a false Christ, like a, a cult or something. Yeah. And this connection gets him a job in the city of Milan, which is like a really, really yeah. nice city in the north. And the actually there'd be there. an emperor. Yeah, I think it's Valentinius or I can't remember this time. Yeah, Valentinus, whatever it is. There's an emperor sitting there. It's like Rome of the North. It's a very nice city. And he becomes an official rhetor, official speaker yep. there. And so he's probably making bling. He's at the height of his career. Already he was like a poet, uh, like a poet laureate or whatever it is, like a crowned poet. So he's in a really good place. And yet we kind of find he's still not happy. This whole chapter is like, I'm super unhappy. Like I'm not as happy as I want to be. I'm anxious, blah, blah, blah even though he's at the height of, of his career. 
And I believe his mom has finally found him again in Milan. Yeah, Chased right. him probably through, I don't know if she did, but probably through Rome. Wasn't there anymore. Went to Milan. And the moral of the story is that mom's rock. Yeah. Uh, but she chased him down and wanted him to become a, a Catholic Christian. Though she has her, it's, it's funny how he portrays her too. Like there's a certain honesty, you know, he, he, she's like on one level, kind of like a super saint. And then on another level, she's got all these kind of problems, right? Like she's doing like, uh, uh, she's, you know, it was a North African practice that she brings into, uh, right. into Europe about the whole idea of like kind of shrines of the martyrs sort of stuff. And she, she kind of gets rebuked by uh, Ambrose, but she has such a high regard for right. Ambrose. He's like, stop doing that. She's like, okay. <laughs> oh, so Ambrose is the main pastor of the big church in Milan. Yep. And his mother, Monica, goes to that church, really likes Ambrose. But Monica brings food to offer to the icons, uh, not icons, actually. The shrines case, of the martyrs. The shrines right? of the martyrs. Okay. She's bringing wine and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, and suspicious. but that Ambrose, the pastor there, is like, oh, that seems really pagan. Don't do that. Yeah, and she acquiesces. So she has some problems. She she also tells Augustine, um, I don't remember if it's in this chapter or not, but in this time period, sir, you sh you can't marry the woman you've been living with for like over yeah, a decade. This yeah, it's this one. And uh, part of the reason is like legally it'd be tough because I think she's from a lower caste. That's a that's a big obstacle. But secondly, I think his mom. You know, for for Wheel of for Will loves Augustine, wants him to succeed, and she knows if he marries down, yep. his career is kind of, his life is kind of down. So this is she is a saint, but like any saint, she's also a sinner. Yep. On this side of heaven, there's um, sinners and saints. We're all together in the ark until we get to heaven. So I think she's a mixed character, but overall, she, she's good. I mean, she's praying for him. She's wanting her best, but Augustine includes. Um, all the warts and wrinkles of the Christian of the Christian life in this as well. What's interesting about that is that he's, you know, when you think of like the word hagiography, right? So like writing in a saintly way, so you're making the, the subject of your book seem perfect. And uh, that really does come through, you know, the early church and the medieval period where hagiography is everywhere. And he himself reads a hagiography, right? Like the, the life of St. Anthony um, by mm -hmm. Athanasius will be a really big book for him as we're going to see here soon. And, uh, and yet he himself doesn't write a hagiography. Mm -mm. He's writing about himself. And the whole thing is like, what an awful sinner I am. And you can, you can be cynical and judge him. Like, oh, is he being truthful here? Is this like a humble brag? Um, I don't think it is because even like the way he's portraying his mother, who he obviously has a very, very, very deep love for, yet he's also willing to kind of show her foibles. And even somebody like an Ambrose doesn't totally come out great here either. You know, he's a bit aloof with Augustine. Right. And uh, kind of like you can't, he's too busy to be able to talk to him. And that really bothers a typical megachurch pastor. Yeah, that's right. That's it. <laughs> uh, Which I mean, kind a of a megachurch pastor who's never, never talks to anybody and only wants to do this. Yeah. Um, no, I think that's useful to, to mention. And yeah, hagiography is interesting. It's also really valuable. I think if you read hagiography, if you read your heroes as being perfect, yeah. you end up kind of creating a legalistic culture where if anyone makes a mistake, yeah. Well, my hero T.T. Shields never did. But then, yeah. you read, and then you learn about like, wow, he made a lot. So, um, or probably. So then. Well, it's the saying, right? Never meet your heroes. Well, you I think in God's providence, this book's really helpful because it actually makes you like Augustine more, but for the right reasons. Totally. Because you know where he came from, what he struggled with. He's yeah. maybe more personal than anyone in his among his contemporaries about his, his internal sins and ruminations and like just these personal stories about how he stole a fruit from a tree for example i think was a pear yeah. um or, or even his lust like in this chapter 
we're talking about the topics anyway so we'll do the reading but i guess it'll be yeah, more yeah. in the middle yeah, um sure. in this chapter is fascinating he, he talks about so he he sent his con uh not concubine he sent his girlfriend back i think she was a carthage i would say that's an appropriate term yeah. well whatever the right terminology is like uh common but but the point is he sends her back but then he's like i was super lustful so yeah. i grabbed another woman i didn't love her I think yeah. he's, he just has, it just finds a, another girlfriend so that he can have sex with her. And when he's talking to this, I think it's a friend of Lippius, if I remember right. He loves Lippius' lifestyle, but it was like, no, Ambrose. He's talking about Ambrose, I believe. He's like, yeah, yeah. He's, he's celibate. Like, he's, he? <laughs> yeah. he's like, are you, celibacy is insane. <laughs> like, <laughs> what are you, crazy? Like, this is like, Ambrose is so great. This must have been his one struggle. <laughs> it's like, yeah. kind of his idea. Yeah, I think it was Ambrose. It was, it was Ambrose or it was Ambrose. Ambrose. Okay, it's it was Ambrose. Ambrose. It's one of those kind of funny moments where you're like, obviously he felt that way because he sent a girlfriend away. Then he's like, I <laughs> I can't be married for two years because oh, he got engaged, but it's a yeah. two year engagement. So he's like, I need a girlfriend in the meantime. So you can see him being um, like the world, like as a sinner is. Yeah, <laughs> like, he's like a typical guy today. Anyway. A typical guy today, he can't, yeah. Can't control his so um, his libido, yeah, that's right. Well, that's what it is, right? But it's interesting when you think about it, right? Like, what's the other great book that is very honest about the characters and their sinfulness, and yet the, another book that's deeply spiritual and deeply relatable is the is the collection of the Psalter, right? And you get like David, who's a man after God's own heart, and yet you know you've got the the whole thing with Bathsheba. What's the inspiration of the confession? The Psalter. Yeah, the Psalms are all over this, right? And so it's like you can see almost in a way like that he is, you know, not recapitulating David or, or that kind of thing, but like he he is a he is in that same sort of vein where he's deeply spiritual. His concerns are for God. He's fighting against himself and his own sin all the time. And he's got like this really profound, like psychological way of being able to articulate what was going on in his mind. And, uh, and it does, it makes him very relatable. Just like the Psalms are so relatable to us. It's like, it's why you can pray the Psalms in almost any psychological condition that you're in because they're totally relevant. Yeah. And that's yeah. why like, I think that the confessions, you know, I keep thinking about like, why was it when I read this book like 15, 20 years ago, I was like, oh, this book's amazing, but it didn't hit me at a certain level. No, it's, it's like, intuitively. I'm rereading it now as a man. I'm like, yeah. 44 this month. And it's like, Ancient of oh my goodness, this book understands me in a way I've never been understood before, <laughs> you know? Which is part of the genius. Now, before I say that, the Psalms, by just by way of reminders, like the Psalms are basically prayers to God and they're full of confessions of praise and of, yep. of sin. And they are... Augustine's fa- as a famous commentator of the Psalms, by the way. Yeah. And yeah, his um, generations on the Psalms are just like just, they're massive. They were, for, they were written for catechumens, I think. There were sermons. There, I don't. Um, I think it was also for the main church, but maybe I'm wrong on that. But okay, yeah. But Augustine's like view is essentially this, the Psalms are there. The Holy Spirit gives you words to to relate to God all of the, the problems of your soul, and then to unfurl them and to be, and to be healed. And he's kind of doing the same things in the Confessions. Uh, even if you read the first page of the confessions, half of it is like Psalms quotations. Yeah, yeah. So I do think the Psalms are a semi-direct influence on the confessions. Yeah. Maybe not in every category, but at least on the, the principle of this is a prayer of confession to God. Um, yeah, it's like, he's well, so, it's yeah. like he's so, he's so, you know, imbibed the Psalms that they just kind of come out of him, you know, right. whether he's being super intentional or whether it's just natural for him to just kind of, speak this way even let alone write 
anyway, the, the section I wanted to read was just, uh, I actually wanted to do the very end of section five. So I've got the Klein-Coffin edition here. Um, and, uh, and then like the last sentence, that last par mini paragraph that ends section five, I just love the language that he uses here. And then the first paragraph of, uh, of section six, where he's gonna talk about, uh, this is just before he starts talking about the beggar, the beggar that he meets on the road. Mm -hmm. So uh, right at the very end of, of section five, uh, he says, my mind dwelt on these thoughts and you, speaking to God, were there to help me and listen to my sighs. And then I love this line here. You were my helmsman when I ran adrift and you did not desert me as I traveled along the broadway of the world. And then number six, I was eager for fame and wealth and marriage, uh, but you only derided these ambitions. They caused me to suffer the most galling difficulties. But the less you allowed me to find pleasure in anything that's not yourself, the greater I know was your goodness to me. Look into my heart, O Lord, for it was your will that I should remember these things and confess them to you. I pray now that my soul may cling to you, for it was you who released it from the deadly snare in which it was so firmly caught. It was in a state of misery, and you probed its wound to the quick, pricking it on to leave all else and turn to you to be healed, to turn to you who are above all things and without whom nothing could exist. Wow, like that, that could be like that could be like the whole uh book of confessions summarized right there in like you know a paragraph and a half i love the language of helmsman right so god is what he's trying to show us in the whole book is that god through his secret providence has been steering augustine through all these like you know risky kind of waters uh where there's all sorts of like you know big rocks under the under the the under the uh, under the water that your boat could crash onto and all this kind of stuff god in his secret providence as the helmsman of the ship has been steering him, helping him when he runs adrift. Uh, and, uh, and he does this, you know, as, as Augustine, uh, pre-convert Augustine is like dealing with like his lusts. He's dealing with the problems of ambition. Uh, really, I think like the problems to be needed uh, and, and, and uh, appreciated is probably a big part of it. And then he, he finishes it with this whole idea of like, um, it was in a state of misery, you probed its wound, right? To the quick. So it's like, it's oh, like man, this this hurts, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and then pricking it on to leave all else and uh, turn to you to be healed, which is such a great and kind of a classic description of the gospel, right? The gospel, like law and gospel, gospel the law wounds and the gospel heals. And uh, it's, it's the imagery yep. here is great. Well, read, read the next sentence because it's interesting the timing of when this happens. Yeah, he says, uh, my misery was complete. And I remember how one day you made me realize how utterly wretched I was. <laughs> You want to keep reading? Yeah, the next sentence, I guess. Yeah, yeah, where he's talking about the emperor. He says, I was yeah. preparing a speech in praise of the emperor, intending that it should include a great many lies, uh, which you would certainly be, uh, which would certainly be applauded by an audience who knew well enough how far from the truth they were. So, so he's, um, a, 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 he's preparing a speech for the emperor of the whole Roman Empire, while at the same time, God is renovating his heart and converting him to himself yeah it's just a really interesting contrast because because again he's, he's he's near the height of a secular career to the point that he actually gives a a, 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 a basically a lecture or a presentation in front of the emperor it's like, like a panegyric kind of thing it's yeah. like he's he's trying to like send all these praises and, and whatnot. right and so that's kind of the height of, of secular of worldly power yeah yet He's going to continue to talk about how he gets unhappy. So it's Valentinian too, is what that is. Is it? Did you check? Yeah. Um, 
And so it's just it's just fascinating the, the contrast there. He, um, and he will then have all these illustrations. He comes down to he sees so he's preparing this this message for this for the emperor, but then he sees a, a beggar. And it's like the beggar's happy. I'm not. Yeah. The beggar's happy simply because he's drunk. <laughs> he, and Gustin's like, I'm doing all this work and I'm not nearly as happy as he is. <laughs> this is lame. <laughs> Why is he gonna be happy? If I'm doing all this to be happy or to have joy to, and all this kind of stuff. Why, why shouldn't it just be like him? He, he's, he's already achieved his goals. My ambition is making my life horrible. Yeah. Which is yeah, why I like at the top, I like my transition slightly better. Let, let, let me read it and then you can go. He says, I aspire to honors, money, marriage, and you laughed at me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I like just the way that it's, it's said in my translation. Yeah, you got Chadwick, right? Yeah. Um, he, it reminds me, I mean, a lot of, of moses right like mm-hmm. moses god's steering the course of moses's life through secret providence right from everything from like you know these hebrew midwives that aren't going to follow the commands of the pharaoh he ends up you know he's in a basket in a bull rush in the water gets taken into the very pharaoh's house who should have actually he should have been killed indirectly by uh gets to the highest positions of power and then abandons the whole thing for god's people right which is kind of like similar here uh that you see uh, in Augustine, but he's had these ambitions that were instilled into him from his parents from a young age. And now he's like getting to the heights of, of everything that he's wanted. And he realizes none of this matters. Like that, that drunk guy over there is actually happier than I am. And I'm getting everything I actually wanted. And sometimes that's what God does with us, right? Is that he gives you everything you want. And then you see how absolutely unsatisfying it is. If it's, if you actually aren't, again, it's the rightly ordered desires and all that stuff. If, if ambition, you, if you have these, if you make these ambitions just for the sake of, you know, your own success and that's the end point or maybe fame and power and marriage. Um, and the end point is actually not delighting in God and worshiping him. Uh, then those things are all going to be empty and just leave you completely bewildered. I mean, that's why he's saying like, he's using the language of misery, which is how the book ends. He's in misery by the, book, the end of book six. And, uh, you Ooh, which know, connects, by the way, to our, remember we talked about Ecclesiastes some time ago. Yeah, yeah. Life under the sun, and not necessarily it's all miserable. But the, the, if you if you just live under the sun, life has no. It's kind of misery. There's no there's nothing to it. Yeah. How you realize you've got to look above the sun, and that's how the book ends, which is basically yeah. find meaning in God to enjoy the things of this life. Where where is it? Like he talks about himself here as being like an animal uh, with his lusts. I think it's like near the end, right where. Uh... He, he's, he's like, he's like animal like, and he can't control himself. And I find it interesting, like how, you know, when you come, when you think of like the classical idea of like the soul faculty psychology, the soul has like three parts, you know, so if you're an intellectualist, then, which I think is the right way to go, you know, then uh, the intellect uh, governs the will and the appetite. And, uh, and then, but if you're, if you're governed by your appetites, you're more animal-like, right? Because animals don't have a rational soul. They've only got a sensitive soul. And so when you're governed by those, by those appetites or desires, um, then it makes you base like an animal, which is kind of like Nebuchadnezzar. You see how he's made like an animal. You talk about how, like in the Psalms. Asaph in Psalm 73. Yeah, exactly. Right. As uh, that's what I was thinking of. And, and he's kind of using the same thing. And it's like, within the soul, it's like you have like a, a hierarchy in the soul where like the lower elements rise up to the higher, which is the intellect. And then you think of like how, how he's framing all of this in confessions. It's like the closer I am to God, then the more everything is unified and ordered and I'm more human. 
because I'm actually like properly related. I'm close to him, morally speaking. But the farther away I am, the more brutish I become. And it's almost like you can see an ascent and descent within the soul also happens in, as an, in relation to the ascent or descent away or closer to God, mm. um, which I thought, I thought was like kind of seems so very biblical to me. It's, it's platonic, but it's also very like Hebrew Bible, you know? Yeah, I don't know where he says he's an animal. He does talk about being um, has a, has an un- insatiable sexual desire right before section thirteen begins. Yeah, I don't know if that's in the same area. See, I don't have it I, in my in the other edition that I uh, initially made. I underlined it. I can't find it in this one. Uh, but anyway, as a side note, I want here's a really cool uh, sentence in section fifteen when um, he has to send away his girlfriend with whom he had a child, yep. he says, my heart, which was deeply yeah. attached, was cut and wounded and yeah. it left a trail of blood. Yeah. yeah um, that's, a line. that's just a cool line. Mine, I've always liked the uh, fine coffin on this. Uh, whenever I've thought of it, I was thinking of it this way. He says, the woman with whom I've been living was torn from my side as an obstacle to my marriage. And this was a blow which crushed my heart to bleeding because I loved her dearly. Mm. And like, imagine like something gets crushed and like the blood's coming out of it. It's like, ugh. I mean, he's like, you can tell he's devastated here. Right. Um, and I think, I don't remember, I don't know how exactly this works, but there, there, there's also like, there's more than just practical reason. There's like a legal reason why it'd be hard for her, him to marry this woman. Well, so she's from uh, Tagas, right? Where he's from. Yeah. Uh, she kind of is like with him in all of his moods uh she's like i think a manichae like he she, she follows him into that uh they have a kid adiodatus together which means gift of god and uh and so in that culture for somebody like who's going to work their way up the social ladder in order to just not sleep with all sorts of different women uh you would take like a concubine in order to just as a way of kind of preserving chastity as it were until you hit to a certain point where then you would abandon the concubine and then you would uh, marry, marry up the social ladder. And it's the crazy thing in this is it's Monica, who's the one who's his mother setting this whole thing up such that like Monica is the one who pushes his wife base. She's his concubine. Like she's been around for a long, they have a kid together and here's Christian Monica shoving her to the side that devastates Augustine. Um, you know, it, and then he, then he ends up like sleeping with some other girl because he can't control himself until the person he's engaged to is of age to marry because she's so young. And then that doesn't even happen. <laughs> so it's like, right. <clears throat> uh, have you did you I can't remember. Did you read Gary Wills, little biography of Augustine? Um, audible. Yeah. Listen to it because he gives her. Yeah, he gives her uh, he gives the concubine a name and calls her Una, uh, which means one or the one in uh, in latin right and so she has this name and he he kind of does some interesting thought experiments because there's lots of times where augustine would have had to have seen her right she goes back to the gas yeah. augustine will eventually go back it's a small town they would have seen they would have gone to church and he would have seen her there their son dies i'm sure they would have been at the funeral together you yeah know? he dies at like, like 17 weird, i think weird things you know that like he he probably like he has to go back to the gas he can't stay there he actually ends up you know going off to hippo because hometown life kind of sucks for him with her there you know it's it's kind of an interesting thought well one thing i've um that i think about too is like i kind of wonder if you know being married and having a kid for augustine um it almost made him a better uh, that might be part of his genius because i think a lot of the guys in this era didn't have that home life 
Yeah. And yeah. I, like, cause even the stuff like Augustine's talking about children, uh, nursing, like even just like this intimate, like, of course he knows he had a kid. Like he's, he really gets yeah. that. And it kind of makes him more psychologically savvy. Um, I think. Yeah. And even in his Trinitarian theology, where he creates these psychological analogies, like he just knows how people work. And I think, this this you know his his broken and crushed heart like he he knows he's looked inside and felt you know despair and, and hope and joy in a, in a full way that a lot of people maybe can't. like his friend Olympias has sex like once and he's like ugh I don't like sex <laughs> Augustine's like okay you weirdo <laughs> so Olympias like I'm just gonna be I'm Olympias just gonna be is... tell it. it's fine <laughs> I, yeah. I like I'm a lawyer but, but Olympias but I like, I like, like, Olympias, I actually had a really, okay, uh, let's talk about Olympias for a second. I'm going to tell you my Olympias moment that I had on mm. the weekend. Um, so, because Olympias is his good friend. Again, they're also friends from, from the guest. Olympias, just, just like the girl, the manichae, travels around with him. He's a student, right, of, uh, of Augustine. Carthage, I think, in, yeah. is it in Carthage, Carthage that Olympias becomes one of the students? Yeah. Um, and they're good friends. Lawyer, I think and, he, and, you know, Augustine's really, at, at, like, yeah, it's like he has like this legal position um, and he and then he he shows like this kind of rock solid character, right? Like he's being tempted to, you know, bend the rules for certain political, you know, power mongers that he's not books. willing to do. And he takes it on the chin. Yeah, there's the issue with the books, which is hilarious, where he's like he's too taken in with books. Like it's like one flaw, which is so weird. It's like it's almost like he's like photocopying. He's photocopying books and you know putting them up on the internet or something and breaking copyrights or something. Um, but then the one issue that where he he really struggles is with going to like the gladiatorial games, right? Right, where he has like, which is so crazy. Like when you think about it, it's like I don't understand that. Like I don't understand why anybody would want to go and watch another human being die in like savage ways like i just don't understand that at all like there's no temptation but i can understand like augustine struggles you know he's had struggles with lesbian women um you know but so it's, it's so it's so like such a striking contrast that this is the issue that olympias has to deal with and then like he's he, re, he renounces it he's not going to go because augustine makes an offhanded comment in a lecture that really convicts olympias of going to these things and then um and then like this group of like kind of false friends drags Olympias to a, a gladiatorial game. He's like, I'm not going to listen. Or he's like, I'm not going to watch. He closes he's his like, eyes. But he, he hears too much, right? And he's like, then he gets furious. in his ears and he's like, he gets caught up in the crowd. Yeah. Um, and then he's like, he's sinning again, you know, because he's going yeah, to doing what he not not to do. So on Saturday night, I, my, a friend of mine, uh, he's one of the dads at my son's uh, Jiu-Jitsu Academy invited me to go uh and here to go to joe rogan joe rogan was here in denver oh, I didn't uh doing a, a stand-up show uh for his uh, sacred clowns tour and he was there with like tony hinchcliffe and uh duncan trussell uh or these other stand-up comedians and it was the same it was like i was having this weird olympias moment where you get there you know and i've never been to a stand-up show before and i've never really like paid attention to rogan as a stand-up comedian right it was like so raw it was like <laughs> I mean, I, 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 you know, I confess I was laughing because it was super funny, but at the same time it was like, and like, they were really hitting hard at cancel culture. And so they were like being particularly egregious, like in the face of cancel culture, which I appreciated, but some of the stuff I'm like, man, I'm laughing and I don't think I should be laughing at this. Yeah. I can see that. And it was like, I can imagine. 
the comedy. I could kind of relate to Olympias here. It was like I, right. I kind of I kind of went to this thing not expecting it, and then it was like, oh my goodness, right. <laughs> you know. And um, anyway, that I don't know why. Yeah, whenever, that. yeah, that's true. Because like, <laughs> all the online comedy shows, which are probably cleaner in a sense, are uh, like on Netflix or whatever, pretty pretty bad. So that's interesting. Hmm. Yeah. Well. Do we have anything else to say, or do we want to end here? Because we did a pre- we did a pretty good little summary of this chapter. Well, let's talk about Ambrose. I mean, a- a- Ambrose okay. is a- Ambrose is a pretty big deal here. I, I find it interesting that um, you know he you can see here that he kind of desperately wants Ambrose in his life, right? Right. And uh, in a weird way, it's like kind of like it's like Ambrose is almost like a father figure for him, right? And just and like his mom's dad. there, and then Ambrose is like dad. Yeah. And his dad had kind of like been ambivalent, sort of rejected Augustine. Now he's going to Ambrose, kind of like for as a father figure. This is the guy that's opening the Old Testament up to him, right? Like Augustine had thought the Old Testament was like awful and barbaric. And now he's hearing like this spiritual kind of allegorical approach. (laughs) And then he's like, he's like, for years, he was like, I made fun of uh, Christianity because I thought God had a body. And then I actually learned from a Catholic Christian that, no, we don't believe God has a body. Those are metaphors. (laughs) When it says that God's yeah. anger, yeah, because yeah, yeah. like, yeah, the manichaeans all believe that God had a physical body. He was like, "Oh, maybe I shouldn't have made fun of the Bible like before I actually try to understand it," <laughs> which is really kind of. But that happens today too. Like you have all these like all these atheists online, like, "Ah, the Bible is a contradiction," and you're like, "Have you ever yeah. even asked the question before to anyone who's a Christian?" No, it's just stupid. Yeah. <laughs> you're like, "Well, yeah, yeah, exactly." It's really kind of funny that way. <laughs> Um, but it's it's funny for him because like Ambrose, you know, won't have anything to do with him. It's like it, you can almost see it in Ambrose's psychology too, right? It's like, oh, here's the wonderkind coming to church, right? Like this kid from North Africa who thinks he's something because he's going to go and speak in front of the emperor. It's like, hey, I'm Ambrose, man. I tell the emperor what to do. Um, so who cares about this like up and comer? And he's kind of like kind of keeps him to the side a little bit, you know. And, uh, and Augustine, I think, really kind of wants his attention, especially the way he sees his mother respond to Ambrose, because, you know, she's practicing this weird North African, you know, kind of not worship, but like she's going to shrines and stuff. And, are you there? Yeah, sorry. I'm, I'm looking at this, this quote. So he says, I could not. Put no, the- I think you're, you're frozen. Oh, can you hear me, though? I can hear you, but I didn't know. I, I don't know what this is doing in the recording. <laughs> well, it's recording on my end, so it'll actually be fine because I, I look fine. So uh, here, here's what we'll it says. <laughs> we'll have to cut this. No, no, we'll keep this. This is a valuable moment. Let me read this here. Let me, uh, I'll read this to you. I'll turn my camera on and off. That might fix it. We'll see if that fixes it. It might be me too, actually. Okay. Uh, but here's what he says. He says, I could not put the questions I wanted to put to him. As I wished to do, I was excluded from his ear and from his mouth by crowds of men with arbitrations to submit to him, to whose frailties he ministered. When he was not with them, which is a very brief uh, period of time, he restored either his body with necessary food or his mind by reading. When he was reading, his eyes ran over the page and his heart perceived the sense, but his voice and tongue were silent. So it was on and on, but basically um, Ambrose is crazy busy. And yes, at this time, he was actually working with like the imperial court probably all these wealthy people he'd be someone you really couldn't go to see it'd be like i don't know like trying to like you know like going to university of toronto and trying to talk to like jordan peterson or something you know like (laughs) i'm not gonna talk to you (laughs) um although funnily jordan peterson actually would talk 
Well, I don't know. I just made something kind of random up, like something like that. I, I know your point. Your yeah, point but, stands. Yeah. I just, I, 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 I get what you're saying, but like that, that is actually one of the things about Peterson's people stop on the street and he always has time for them. You know, oh, okay. it's interesting too, like how Ambrose here is, it, it was a big, it's a big deal that Ambrose is reading quietly because, you know, the way in order to preserve space on a scroll, because Ambrose would be reading from a scroll. Yeah. And so in order to get as many words on, you didn't have spaces between words, right? Just like, you know, like with like virus or something. And, uh, and so in order to actually comprehend the words, you had to read out loud so you could hear it. And like, oh, that's, that's how you could figure out the words in a sentence. And here's Ambrose sitting in the quiet reading and mm. nobody wanted to interrupt him because he was reading quietly. And it was like, it was so weird for Augustine that he actually has to note, like this guy's actually reading quietly to himself and he's like taking these words in spiritually from the scroll. Yep. Uh, which is kind of neat. Yeah. It looks like um, he did get a brief interview, he says, with Ambrose. And I think through that brief interview and through listening to her preach, he figures out God doesn't yeah. have a body. Uh, he figures out how to read the Bible better. He says, Ambrose, um, and I was delighted to hear Ambrose in his sermons. This is section four, maybe second paragraph. And I was delighted to hear Ambrose in his sermons to the people saying, as if he were most carefully enunciating a principle of exegesis, quote, the letter kills, the spirit gives life. So 2 Corinthians 3, 6. Those texts, which were, which taken literally, seem to contain perverse teaching. He would expound spiritually, removing the mystical veil. He did not say anything I felt to be a difficulty, but whether what he said was true, I still do not know. Uh, still did not know because he's going to accept it later. But what's interesting, so the, the mystical veil, so what does he mean? Well, it's like it's like marriage. So Ephesians 5 says the great mystery is marriage. It speaks to Christ and his church. So you could read things about marriage in the Old Testament and think about them as referring to Christ and the church because Paul does that. It's those sorts of things. So I think sometimes you hear that in our modern ear and you think, was well, he just making stuff up? No, no, no. He's following the apostolic pattern, but he's teaching Augustine to read the Bible in a way that accords with with how the apostles and uh, the Lord Jesus did. Uh, That's cool. Yep. Am I still frozen for you, by the way? You're just very choppy, but I suspect it's not even there. I can hear you okay, so. That's good. Uh, yeah. Anything else you want? we want to say? He, he, tell, he tells us here, like, well, right at the end of book six, right? Just at the end of the, of, uh, not the last paragraph, but the one before it. Um, he says, you know, I certainly love them for their own sakes. And I felt they loved me for my sake in return. Like, I think you see, you're talking about his friends. Right. Mm. Uh, and, um, and then he says, what crooked paths I trod, what dangers threat my soul when it rashly hoped that by abandoning you, God, uh, it would find something better, whichever way it turned on front or back or sides, it lay on a bed that was hard for in you alone, the soul can rest, um, which is a similar language to the opening of the whole confessions. He says, you are there to free us from the misery of error, which leads us astray, to set us on our own path and to comfort us by saying, run on, I shall hold you up. I shall lead you and carry you on to the end. And it's like, oh man, what a, like a beautiful way. It, it, it's like, I know people think, oh, that footprints, you know, kind of poem, or, you know, God's footprints in the sand kind of stuff, kind of corny. It's like, that's kind of what he's saying here, you know? <laughs> in Isaiah 40, it would be lift up like the wings of eagles. And, and I think God will carry yeah. us uh, over the, over the highway across the desert to the promised land. I might be misremembering that, but that's that kind of idea in Isaiah anyways. So you, you do have this yeah. language in scripture where God carries you like a bird. You rest in him as he's doing the work yeah. for you. 
So I like it. I, I say we stop here because we've gone for like half an hour and this is our bonus episode to catch up and hopefully we'll get together and finish chapter seven. I don't, what is chapter seven about? I didn't even look yet. Uh, probably some very, uh, very interesting seven. things. <laughs> oh, oh, Neil, Neil Platonism. That'll be a fun one. Neil Platonism. Oh yeah. That'd be fun. Okay. Sounds good. See you next time.